Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the yearly commemoration of the triumphal entry. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem that set in motion the final showdown with the principalities and powers. When Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, it was an invasion from heaven that would culminate in the overthrow of Satan. The Roman governor Pontius Pilate resided in the coastal city of Caesarea in a Herodian palace. But on Passover week, it was required of the Roman governor that he be present in the capital city of Jerusalem because Passover is a celebration of Jewish liberation. And if there was ever going to be a revolt among the Jewish people against Roman occupation, it was going to be during Passover. And so Pilate arrives from Caesarea. He's coming from the west. And he enters Jerusalem on his war horse. He comes with his legions. It is a deliberate and intimidating show of force. It's a kind of military parade. The message being communicated to the city of Jerusalem is don't even think about it. If you're thinking about a revolt, just remember who we are and what we're capable of. And so there's Pilate astride his war horse with his sword. And now this is replicated around the world because, you know, there's always some dude on a horse. But there he is, showing up to keep the peace, as it were. Meanwhile, Jesus is also arriving in Jerusalem for Passover week. He's coming from the east. He's coming from a different direction than the Roman governor. He's not just though coming from a different direction, he's coming a different way. He rides no war horse. He rides on a donkey. It is a deliberate fulfillment of the 400 year old prophecy of Zechariah that one day a peaceful king of the Jews will come to the city humble and lowly, riding upon a donkey. And that this Prince of Peace will teach peace to the nations. And so as Jesus arrives at the crest of Mount Olives, he procures a donkey. He says it must be fulfilled. And he begins to ride the donkey, not the war horse. 
And the people began to select their song from Psalm 118. And they begin to say, oh, this is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now this is the first time that Jesus has allowed himself to be publicly proclaimed the Christ, the King, the Messiah. It's a very dangerous thing. That's why the Pharisees tried to warn Jesus and said, oh, you, this is dangerous stuff to arrive here in Jerusalem at Passover week when Pilate's in town and be called the king. You better tell your disciples to be quiet. Jesus says, not today, not this day. On this day, if my disciples would cry, well, I mean, the rocks would start crying out. On the next day, on Monday, Jesus did something equally provocative and dangerous. He staged his prophetic disruption in the temple. And so with these two actions, Jesus has made it clear that he is invading. He's staging an invasion and there is going to be a deliberate confrontation with the principalities and powers. With his triumphal entry, allowing himself to be proclaimed king, and his disruption of the temple where he's flipping over the tables and driving out the money changers. Jesus is making it clear that there's about to be a confrontation. The triumphal entry and the disruption of the temple were the kind of confrontations that would not go unchallenged. The empire is going to strike back. And so the conspiracy to murder Jesus ascends the top priority. And by Friday, Jesus is arrested, tried, condemned, and crucified. And the principalities and powers no doubt congratulated themselves and thought the threat has been eliminated. They could not have been more wrong. In fact, it is in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that the principalities and powers were overthrown. That's why the Apostle Paul said, if the principalities and powers had known the secret of God... They would never have crucified the Lord of glory. So, what does this mean? This exposes the principalities and powers. This subverts their pretentious claim to legitimacy. And it is from this point that ultimately Satan is driven out from being the ruler of the world. Now the satanic spirit of accusation, domination, empire, operates through the principalities and powers. And it is most often located among those who use three things, power, political power, wealth, and religion to resist the kingdom of God 
and maintain a corrupt and unjust status quo. Now, the drama of Holy Week, and we're entering into a, a time of high drama. And in drama, you have to have a protagonist, a hero, but you also have to have a villain, an antagonist. And in the drama of Holy Week, to understand it, you really have to understand the antagonist. Yes, ultimately, it's the Satan. But the Satanic is personified in three powerful leaders that are all in Jerusalem that week. Number one, Pontius Pilate, the cruel Roman governor who is the presence of Rome's power in Judea. Number two, Herod Antipas. This is the wealthy client king installed in Judea by Rome. And number three, Joseph Caiaphas, the corrupt high priest who is colluding with Rome. And in those three men, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, we find a triumvirate of political, economic, and religious power that typifies the fallen world under the rule of Satan. Now, the principalities and powers, they claim that they have the right to rule the world because they are wise and just. I mean, Pontius Pilate's going to say, it is right and proper that I'm the governor because I am wise and just. I promise you he'll say that. Herod Antipas says it is proper and appropriate that I should be the king of the Jews because I am wise and just. And no doubt, Joseph Caiaphas will say, it is entirely appropriate that I am the chief priest because I am wise and just. But what happened when the word of God, the wisdom of God, the righteous one, the just one, came into their system. They're saying, we have the right to rule the world politically, economically, religiously, because we're wise and just. And yet when the wisdom of God, the word of God, the just one of God came into their system, what happened? This happened. What does that do? that exposes their pretentious claim as nothing but empty propaganda. You say to the principalities and powers, if you're so wise and just, how come you did this to the innocent one, to the one that is the very wisdom of God? You nailed him to a tree. Yes, the cross exposes the claims of the principalities and powers to be nothing but empty propaganda. Paul says it like this. He disarmed the principalities and powers and put them to public shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Now, you know, that's a Bible verse that maybe you've heard before. Maybe you're somewhat familiar with it. And you go, yeah, there must be something to that. But you need to understand what a radical and bold and daring thing Paul is claiming. Crucifixion was the most cruel and inhumane form of execution in the ancient world. Part of the shame of the cross is the absolute humiliation of the victim. 
They were crucified naked. They were shamed in that way. They not only suffered, they were put to shame. This is the scandal of a crucified Messiah. How can the Lord of glory be put to the shame of crucifixion? Well, here's Paul's theological move. He says, no, no, no. It is not the Lord of glory who is put to shame at the cross. That, in fact, is his glory. The shame that they tried to heap upon Jesus came back upon them. Ultimately, it's not Jesus who is stripped at the cross. It's the principalities who are stripped and we are shown their naked ambition. They're the ones who are put to shame. So that now, so that now all power whether it's political power, economic power, religious power, all power is judged in the light of this. If people are using political, economic, and religious power for mere self-interest, just to promote themselves, this puts that to shame. Because now we know this is the world's true king. And this is what true leadership looks like. It's co-suffering. It's laying down one's life. It is not asserting one's own privilege and power and position, but it's an expression of love. Now, that pilot, the pagan Roman procurator, and Herod, a corrupt client king would condemn Jesus to the cross is fairly easy to understand. I mean, I, I can understand why Pilate and Herod would do what they did. I mean, motivated by political power and economic self-interest, they were easily manipulated by Satan. But it's Caiaphas, a compromised religious leader, who both fascinates and disturbs me. Again, I get it. I understand why the Roman governor would do what he did. I understand why a corrupt client king of Rome would do what he did. It's the religious leader that bothers me. In Caiaphas, we find a cautionary tale for all who would try to combine religious faith with political ambition. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem probably in A.D. 30, might be 33. Joseph Caiaphas was about 45 years old, and he had just become the high priest that year. He was in the first year of his priesthood. His father-in-law, Annas, had been the high priest for the previous 20 years. To be the high priest in one sense, is to be the shepherd of the people of God. What is to be kept in mind is the well-being, the spiritual well-being of the seed of Abraham, the people of God. But Caiaphas had been corrupted, and you know what corrupts. What is it that corrupts? Power. He was corrupted by power. 
And what he wanted was to be close to Caesar and imperial power. And his religious position was the way that he went about doing that. Caiaphas, you know, his stock and trade is he has to engage in religious language. He has to quote scripture. He has to talk about Yahweh. He has to talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's mostly just empty language for him. Caiaphas didn't really believe in what he professed. What he really believed in was political power. Which is another way of saying what he really believed in was the power of Caesar. And that's what he wanted. He was not going to be king. He could never be the Roman governor, but he could use his high priesthood as a means of getting close to political power. And it's very interesting that apparently Caiaphas didn't resist Jesus because he didn't think he was Messiah. Caiaphas resisted Jesus because he thought he just might be Messiah. Caiaphas, of all of them, goes into this with his eyes wide open. He knows what he's doing. I don't know to what extent, you know, Herod and Pilate understand that they're pawns in a satanic game. It seems to me that Caiaphas, though, has some understanding of what's happening and still does it. John eleven forty eight. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas looks around and he says, you know, people are starting to really believe that he's the one, the king, the Christ, the Messiah. They are rallying to him. He's popular among the masses. And if we don't intervene... We're all going to lose our positions here. So Caiaphas proposes a plot to accuse Jesus and make him a sacrificial scapegoat so that they can preserve their political position. He says it like this. You do not realize that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation does not perish. Those are the words of Caiaphas. But those words were, they had, a word, they had a meaning that even Caiaphas didn't understand. Now the problem was though, I mean they want to kill Jesus. That's, that's the solution to the problem. They want to kill Jesus and they, they figure if we kill him, well then the problem's solved. But how to go about it is the problem. Because if they just arrest Jesus in public, it's likely to trigger a riot, and that's the last thing they want. They know where Jesus is every day. He's not hard to find every day. He's in the temple teaching the people. But they, they don't dare arrest him there. This comes up over and over as you read the gospel texts. They know where he is. They'd like to arrest him. They don't dare because there's going to be a riot. So what they need is to find a way to arrest him by stealth, perhaps at night. When the crowds aren't around, but they don't know where he is. That's when Judas shows up. 
and says, uh, I bet you guys would like to know where you can find Jesus when he's not around the crowds. Well, I know. And they work out a deal for 30 pieces of silver that Judas will betray Jesus so that he can be arrested when the crowds are not present. So Caiaphas engineers his murder plot. Judas betrays Jesus. He's arrested, tried, as it were, condemned. And in the morning, he's brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Initially, Pontius Pilate is a little bit hesitant to just immediately pronounce the sentence of crucifixion. They bring him to Pilate because only the Roman governor has the authority to issue capital punishment. And so Pilate has to be on board in their scheme. And initially, Pilate is reluctant, not because he's a compassionate man and cares about some Galilean prophet, but because he just doesn't like Caiaphas. And he's just going to make things difficult for him. They don't like each other, clearly. But Caiaphas, he has, uh, he has his ace up his sleeve, and he knows just when to play it. And finally he says, you know, if you don't crucify this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Yeah, that gets his attention. But Pilate's going to have one more retort. And he, in effect, says, oh, don't you guys, you guys are, you know, the religious leaders. Don't you believe in a, a Messiah? Don't you believe in a coming king of the Jews? You want me to just go out and crucify your Messiah? You want me to crucify your king? I thought you guys were supposed to believe in this stuff. Do you want me to crucify your king? And that's when Caiaphas says it. He says, we have no king but Caesar. The ultimate betrayal of everything that Moses and the Hebrew prophets stood for. I mean, the high priest saying, we have no king but Caesar. Every Jewish boy and girl knows the confession is, we have no king but Yahweh. God is our king. But Caiaphas... He's going to have a moment of real honesty. He's going to take off the mask. And he's saying, look, governor, you have access to power through politics. Herod over there in his palace has access to power through his royal position. My access to power is going to be along the lines of religion. I'm going to use religious language. I'm going to wear religious robes. But understand, that is all just in pursuit of the same thing you're after, power. And so I'm just going to take off the mask and I'm going to tell you, Pilate, you and I, we serve the same thing. We serve the pursuit of political power that's found in Caesar. I'm just like you. I have no king but Caesar. I'm going to put the mask back on now and go about the game, the charade of being chief priest, but at least you know where I'm coming from. What do we learn from the tragic tale of Joseph Caiaphas? We learn that when religious leaders use their position 
to gain proximity to political power, their faith is false and their true allegiance is exposed. They have no king but Caesar. Now, if we stand with Pilate, Herod, and Caiaphas, we continue to live in a world where Satan rules. Now, their power is doomed. The Apostle Paul makes that very clear. That their age is passing away and these rulers are doomed to perish. But we can still sort of live in that demonic world if we stand with the likes of the principalities and powers in the gospel story. It's Pilate, Herod, and Caiaphas. But if instead we are drawn into this new orbit, this new place, Jesus said, and if I am lifted up, what's going to happen? I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to cast out the ruler of this world, and I'm going to drag, I'm going to draw all people to myself. If we allow ourselves to be drawn here, we begin to live in a world where Satan has no power. Remember, Jesus says right before the suffering begins, he says, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. There is nothing of the Satan right here. I mean, yes, with the principalities and powers, but not in this one. Not in this one. And so as we let go of greed and ambition for power, that is mostly motivated by our fear and insecurity. As we let go of the of the satanic mechanism of dealing with our own fear by blaming someone else, by creating scapegoat victims. Uh, when we are drawn to Jesus, all that begins to disappear. And we say, I don't have to fight. I don't have to accuse. I can just stand here with Jesus and say, Father, forgive them. And into your hands I commit my spirit. I put it in your hands, God. I'm just going to trust you. It's not fight or flight. It's trust. I'm going to trust you. And when we're drawn to the cross like that, we're drawn into a place where the Satan has already been overthrown, already cast out, already driven out, already defeated. Do you want to live in a world where the Satan is not present? We come here. We come here. Oh, God. Deliver us from evil and the evil one. The Satan, Hasatan, accuser, adversary. So that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. So that every tongue that rises up against us in judgment you will condemn. So every fiery dart of the wicked one is extinguished by the shield of faith. So that as we submit to you and resist the devil, the devil flees so that, so that as we draw to you, lifted up upon the cross. Your cross becomes the axis of love expressed in forgiveness that drives out the Satan. The one who led humanity astray into rivalry, accusation, violence, domination, war, empire, and all manner of sin. Here at this place, that Satan is driven out from among us. Oh, God of peace, soon crush the Satan under our feet. What does this mean? It means the overthrow of Satan. 
Amen. Stand with me. Yeah, go ahead and praise the Lord if that's what you want to do. Amen. We'll be back here Friday night to look upon the one who is pierced. And see the blood and the water that comes from his side because that means something. And then we'll be back here next Sunday. I'll just say a little bit, not much. I got one more Sunday to talk about this. It will not, though, be a Lenten look at the cross. It's going to be an Easter look at the cross. Because the cross is also the death by which death is destroyed. Join with me in confessing our sins that we might receive the merciful love of God and forgiveness. Pray with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. So in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table. Not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those that love him and those that want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord's will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. and the blood of Christ shed for you.